I joke with Michael. Um, I say it's not because of the speaker, but I tell you, this will be one of your favorite sessions because of Michael. Uh, Michael's an outstanding student of the word and, and an even better presenter of that word. Um, Michael currently serves as an instructor and vice president of operations for Bear Valley here in Denver. Uh, he has been on the staff of the school since 2002. Uh, he teaches classes in research, general epistles, gospel of Mark, teaching strategies, and ministry technologies. He is also one of the leading experts in the Logos Bible software within the Brotherhood and speaks regularly on the use of technology technology in the church. Uh, his background is a marketing communications professional and graphics designer, uh, and that enhances his technology expertise in areas like presentation, website design for ministry, and more. Um, Denny introduced Michael last night as the dedication of the book, and I can tell you it's well-deserved. Uh, Michael has done so much good work, uh, not only for the school at Bear Valley, but in the brotherhood at large. He's an outstanding student of the word. Um, I can tell you that looking up here at his notes and in his Bible. Uh, it's going to be an excellent lesson today. And, um, I'm excited to hear him hear him present to us and hear what he has to say. So, Michael, preach the word to us. Quick announcement before we start. Um, we're in need of an alumni relations director. <laughs> Colton and Katie will be joining some other church at some time soon. No. I appreciate Colton very much, and I appreciate he and Katie who've joined us recently uh, to help with alumni relations. It's great to have them here. And uh, One of the things I lo love about Bear Valley is that uh, the students and the staff kid with each other all the time, but we love each other dearly, and we're all committed to the same goal. Um, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalm 73. I consider myself more a teacher than a preacher, and so uh, in that vein, we'll, we're going to work our way uh, through Psalm 73. But I love the topic of this lectureship. I think it's very timely. Denny did a good job in, in selecting this lectureship. Claim to hope and trust in difficult times. I would argue that the church and, and many individuals in this room have gone through difficult times in the last couple of years. It's been hard. Our culture is a mess. The pandemic caused a lot of stress and, and trials. Our churches are in difficult times. We've lost a lot of members. We don't know where they went. We're still seeking the lost and trying to encourage those that have come back. And even just people dealing with life issues in general, hope and trust in those difficult times becomes so foundational to the Christian life. But what happens when our view of God, how he deals with his people, how he deals with the world, doesn't line up with what we see around us? How does it impact our hope and our trust when our theology doesn't match what we witness around us. Oftentimes, that's when our hope and our trust crumble. But I'm going to argue today that it's typically not because God has failed us, even though sometimes that is where we place the blame, but because our theology about God is, is skewed. And this isn't a new problem. If you go back to Psalm 73, we're gonna. This psalm was written by a man named Asaph, 
And Asaph had the exact same problem. And we're going to walk through how he uh, had this problem, what the flaws in his theology, uh, and what the resolution to that was, and how he comes back out the other side. But Asaph is an interesting character. He's not just a typical Jew Israelite in the Old Testament. This man is in full-time ministry, if you will. He was one of the chief musicians in David's temple court in, in 1 Chronicles 15. We see that. He was also in charge of the music when they brought the ark back to uh, Jerusalem in, in, in 1 Chronicles 16. He was in charge of putting the music together for all of that. In 1 Chronicles 25, it says that he prophesied on behalf of the king. He, this guy was a, a minister in 2 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 30 called him a seer, one who spoke on behalf of God. In some level, he, he was a prophet of God. And so this isn't just an average guy. This is a guy that's dedicated himself to serving God in the temple, dedicated to serving the king, and, and he, he's devoted his life to spiritual service, and yet we're going to witness that this man has doubts. He's, he's got a struggle. Now, from a, a structural standpoint in the psalm, you can really break this psalm down into three sections, and they all revolve around the word surely. They all revolve around these, these statements that he makes that, that describe what he believes and what he holds on to, where he's put his trust and his hope. You'll notice the first one is in, in verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel and to those that are pure in heart. That's where he's going to begin. You'll see the next one down in verse 13. And, and you'll see the last one in verse 18. And those three sections break down this psalm. So he, he starts with chapter 1, verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel and to those that are pure in heart. Amen? God's good to his people. What do we, There's two problems, though. What do we mean by good? Right? How we define good here is really, really important. And how Asaph was defining good was part of his problem. And also what it means for us to be... Pure in heart. That's part of our definition issue that we need to look at as well. First, let's deal with the second one first, and then we'll go back to, to the good. He's good to those that are pure in heart. He's going to define this. If you flip down uh, to verse 13, he describes pure in heart as one who has washed his hands in innocence, right? This idea that if you are faithful to God, that he's good to you, right? If you're pure in heart, if you've washed your hands in innocence, he's going to take care of you. We see a similar idea back in, in uh, Psalm 24. In Psalm 24, verse 4, he says, He who has clean hands, there it is, and a pure heart, well, what is that? One who has not lifted his soul to falsehood and has not so sworn deceitfully. Those that aren't sinful, right? Those Now, it doesn't mean sin less than the idea that you've never sinned, but have taken care of your sins the way God has, has demanded that they take care of those, their sins. One who is striving to serve God and be right with Him is one that's pure in heart. And God's good to those that are pure in heart, right? 
Well, the word pure, the word good here is an interesting word. It's the Hebrew word tob. It's a pretty common word. I believe it appears about 315 times in the, in the Old Testament. But it's the idea of favored or loved. And Asaph is stating his theology, surely God favors his people, right? Those that seek to serve him, God blesses. And we see that mindset throughout the Old Testament. This idea of if you're right with God, you're blessed. What was the problem with Job and Job's friends, right? Job's going through a very difficult time. And what do his friends say? It's got to be about your sin. And Job is swearing that he has not sinned, that he's right with God, that he's taking care of anything that would cause that separation between him and, and the friends keep coming back to saying, Job, if you would just fess up and tell everybody that you're a sinful man, you, it would explain all this, right? The idea in the Old Testament was if you're, if God is pleased with you, he blesses you materially. If he's not pleased with you, things are not going to go so bad. And if there's difficulties in your life, it's because God's unhappy with you. And that's the mind Mindset that Asaph brings to the table when he says, surely God is good to Israel and to those that are pure in heart. Now, it's interesting. We see that mindset prevalent all the way into the New Testament. When you look at the, the account of the rich young ruler, Jesus, after he teaches the rich young ruler, and you remember the story, the rich young ruler walks away grieving because he had to give up all his stuff. The disciples asked Jesus, if this is true, that it's hard for a rich man to enter the, the kingdom of heaven, then who can be saved? Because in their minds, the rich are being blessed by God. They're being favored by God. The reason they're rich is because God is favoring them. And if the favored of God can't get into the kingdom of heaven... Who can be? Nobody can be. If, if the ones that God likes can't get in, then he's certainly not going to let us in. Are you, are you following the mindset? In John chapter 9, we have a similar issue with the blind man, the man who's born blind. The, the, they ask, who sinned that this man would be born blind? He's being punished by God. God's not happy with him. He's sinful, and God must be punishing him. That's why he's blind. And if you remember Jesus' answer is, it's not his parents or this man. That, that is, it doesn't work that way, right? And we're not going to teach John chapter 9 right now. But, but you can see how their mind was working. And we would say, we don't think that way anymore, do we? <laughs> How often do we look at the world and think they're winning and we're losing? How often do we idolize in our culture sports heroes that are making millions of dollars and have these lavish lifestyles and we say, oh man, they are so successful. God's not blessing me that way. Why isn't God? I'm working to serve God, and yet it looks like the wealthy are winning, and I'm losing. Surely God is good to those that are pure in heart, to his people, right? Well, why aren't we all the wealthy ones? Why don't we all have the, the Tiger Woods seven $20 million homes kind of thing? Why aren't we being blessed by God? And that conundrum is what causes Asaph to struggle. Notice he says, but as for me, verse 2, <clears throat> my feet came close to stumbling 
And my steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There's his problem, isn't it? If God is so good to his people, then why are they winning? Why are the wicked being blessed? Why are the arrogant the ones that seem to have it all and we're not and I'm not really is what Asaph would ultimately say. And so in four through nine, <coughs> excuse me, he's going to describe what he described and what he sees in the world around him. Uh, it's an interesting perspective. Notice he starts in verse four for there are no pains in their death and their body is fat. Well, Really, do the wealthy not have pain when they die? Well, of course they do, but what's happening? Asaph's having a pity party, isn't he? I mean, the reality is sometimes when it's not going the way we want, when things are difficult, we kind of start to look at everything else through these rose-colored glasses, and we look at ours, our life with these, I don't know what color it would be, but, uh, you know, our situation is far worse than their, theirs is. Well, the reality, he's just talking about how easy their life seems to be. Their body is fat. They don't want for food. They got everything they need. They got plenty of food. And remember, in, in this culture, you've got rich and poor. You don't have much of a middle class in, in this time in biblical history and so you're either struggling or you're wealthy and he says you know their body is fat and that's verse 5 they're not in trouble as other men really the translation there is they don't have troubles like other men he's going to come back to that idea later on their lives are just so easy nor are they plagued like mankind. The word there is the same word we're going to see for stricken down in verse 14. They're not touched by God in, in a difficult way. They're not rebuked by God. There seems like everything's going fine for them. And notice in verse 6, therefore, because their life is so easy, because there's no pain in their death and their body is fat and they don't have troubles, it's gone to their head and pride is their necklace. Now, wherever you see this idea of a necklace in the Old Testament, it's a description of everywhere they go, they take it with them. Your necklace is something you put around your neck, right? So wherever you go, guess what? Your neck goes with you. So when these, when these poetic concepts of something that's worn around the neck means everywhere they go, they take this with them. Well, what are they taking with them? Pride goes with them everywhere they go. They're puffed up. The garment of violence covers them. Now, the word violence here means cruelty or injustice. They're cruel. They're mean. They, they, their, their wealth and their, their ease of life has gone to their heads. And so the garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges with fatness. They don't limit themselves to anything. There's an interesting in, in 2 Peter, he talks about the same idea that the false teachers of, of Peter's time, their eyes, they just do whatever they see. If it looks pleasurable to them, they're gonna they their eyes bulge with fatness. They're just gonna indulge themselves in whatever they want. And notice the imagination of their heart runs riot. Now, heart is a key word through this book. It appears six times in the book. You notice how he began. 
God is good to those that are pure in heart. He believes himself to be pure in heart. And now his argument is they're not pure in heart. They're wicked. They allow their heart to run riot, and yet God seems to be blessing them. That doesn't work. What's happening? Asaph's theology is coming, crumbling down around him. What he believes about God and how God works is being challenged in these difficult times of Asaph's life. And he sees that the imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. And they speak from on high. I find this an interesting concept, especially in our current culture. Have you noticed that the people in our culture that have been elevated to that status, uh, surprisingly to me, movie stars, uh, sports heroes, the political elite, the wealthiest of our culture, seem to feel equipped to tell us how to live? (laughs) Right? I mean, every opportunity they have, they want to define what's good and what's not good in our culture, what's wicked and what's not wicked in our culture. And they don't see much as wicked, do they? Uh, And they feel like they are in a position to sit on high and tell us how we should live and what we should accept. Homosexuality should be acceptable. Abortion should be acceptable. All of these things that we know from God's word he abhors, they want to tell us are all okay. They sit from on high and they speak and tell us what we should do. And many of them mock God in the process, do they not? And yet our culture envies them and lifts them up. And sometimes even people in the church do the same thing. You know, it's interesting to me, we've bought into a lie, brothers and sisters, that we got to stop. And and that is that the the image that we have of some of these people is a real image, that, that what we know about them is accurate. I hear all the time, oh, I really like this particular baseball player. He's a really good guy. How do you know that? All you know about him is what the media has projected to you. I mean, have you spent time with him? Do you know how he deals with his kids or his wife or his family? Do you know how he lives his life day by day? No, you know what he looks like on a camera. We say say the same thing about actors, which that one to me is even more ridiculous since the fact is they're never being themselves when we see them and we'll say, oh, that guy's a great guy. You know, he's been married for a really long time. Well, that's a good thing, but that doesn't mean he's a good guy in God's eyes, does it? And we lift these people up and we allow them to speak from on high and we sometimes we listen to them, which we shouldn't, right? Well, Asaph is having the same problem. They speak from on high. They've set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Well, I would argue that that's our current culture, not just Asaph's, isn't it? The people that have a voice in our culture typically are the wealthy, the media people, the people that have a platform and they use it to tell us how we should live. And Asaph sees that and it challenges his perception of God. But he has a second problem, and the second problem is what we see in 10 through 12, and that is, he says, therefore, because they do this, his people, God's people, return to this place, and the waters of abundance are drunk by them. Brothers and sisters, the world influences the church far more than it should. You know, there's an old saying that whatever's in the world is in the church. And those of us that are in full-time ministry would attest to that. 
the sins that are occurring out there in the world are happening in our churches as well. We are very influenced by the world. And the, the idea that we look at the culture around us and we're so envious, we think God's blessing them and he's not paying attention to us. Why are we going to remain pure in those situations? And we want what they have. And guess what? We chase it. And when we do, it brings sin in our lives and it brings difficulties in our lives and it brings challenges in our lives and our faith and our hope start to shift into more worldly things. And it's amazing how many Christians have put their hope in worldly things rather than in the spiritual things. It's the same thing that James was talking about in James chapter 4 when he called the, the Christians of his day adulteresses who were seeking friendship with the world rather than that relationship with God. And sometimes we see that as well. And he says in verse 11, they say, how does God know? Well, why would they think God doesn't know? Because where are the lightning bolts? If that is so evil out there, why isn't God destroying them? Why isn't God punishing him? Why is, it, why is God blessing them with all this material stuff when in reality he should be wiping them off the face of the earth? And if he's not, then God's not paying attention. And guess what? If he's not paying attention, we may as well get the same blessings they have, right? That's not good theology, folks. But that is the theology that Asaph finds himself in, and it's the, the theology that we find ourselves in quite often. We say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High God? Behold, he finally summarizes, these are the wicked. The wicked are the ones who, whose eyes bulge from fatness, their hearts run riot, they speak from on high, but the real wicked are the ones that will say, God has no idea what's going on, he's not paying attention, we can do what we want. Because now that's a challenge against God and his character, isn't it? That's a challenge in, in how we perceive God in the world, and that is the, the essence of wickedness. And he says, they are always at ease and they have increased in wealth. What's that? Say? I'm not increasing in wealth. Where's my wealth increase? They're getting more and more. I'm getting less and less. And it, it comes down to that. And so Asaph makes his next theological statement in verse 13. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. I've been working so hard to follow God and it's not profiting me anything. It's in vain. It's profitless that I have worked so hard to keep my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. Why? Because I have been stricken all day long. It's the pity party, right? You remember That word stricken is the exact same word used in verse 5 that is plagued. They're not plagued, man, like mankind. I am. They're not stricken. I'm stricken all day long. Now, does it sound like Asaph's life as a musician in the temple is really stricken all day long? What happens when we get into that cycle of negativity? Kind of snowballs on us, doesn't it? It come, becomes worse and worse. Once we feed that wolf of negativity, 
things just get, we start to exaggerate the negativity and it just gets worse and worse. It's a spiral that's hard to break. And Asaph finds himself in that situation. Why am I working so hard to honor God? Why am I working so hard to keep my heart pure? Because I've been stricken all day long and I am chastened every morning. The word chastened there is to be rebuked. I'm being rebuked for trying to serve God. God's rebuking me and he's blessing them. This isn't fair. And isn't that the two words or three words or however many words it is (laughs) that we struggle with? It's not fair. Well, it's not fair because of the way we see God. And maybe it's because we haven't viewed him properly. But notice that Asaph doesn't give up. Verse 15, he recognizes that even though he's having this doubt issue, he constrains himself because he realizes he's a spiritual leader of Israel. And he says in verse 15, if I had said thus, I will speak thus. Behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And when I pondered this, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. He recognizes as a minister of God's people that if he expresses this doubt, it's going to affect God's people. And, and brothers and sisters, I want to tell you that I know there are preachers in this room and full-time preachers. And sometimes I think the church thinks full-time ministers are immune from doubts and spiritual struggles. And I will tell you that the men that are your your preachers struggle with confessing to you those struggles because of exactly what Asaph is saying here. They don't want to betray your trust in them. They know that you look they look up to you, you look up to them as spiritual leaders and they're worried about shattering that. But the reality is they're just as human as you are. They have the same doubts and struggles that you have. Right. And and those of you that are ministers, find men that you can talk to. Maybe it's other ministers. Maybe it's, it's members, elders who shepherd you, whatever the case may be. But you have to talk through these things. You can't just keep them bottled up. Because the negativity spiral will slowly drive you away from ministry. You've got to find people that you trust, that you can be confident with, and that you can share your doubts and struggles. There was a a Facebook group not too long ago that was formed by a bunch of preachers to just kind of talk about some of their struggles. It was a private group, a small group. And I remember talking to one of the gentlemen, and one of the guys in the group had confessed his doubts about a particular doctrine. He was just working through it. And one of the other guys in the group said, yeah, and I just had to call his elders and tell them. (laughs) Guys, we need to be able to to confide in one another Mm -hmm. and recognize that it's not some, we're not becoming false teachers, but we have doubts sometimes. We're struggling. And we need to be able to share that with one another and help one another. But notice that even with all of this, Asaph does not stop. He says, I pondered to understand this, and it was troublesome in my sight. The word troublesome here is the same word from verse 5 when he said, they are not in trouble like other men. I have troubles. My trouble is this spiritual problem that I have. They don't have those, but I do. And verse 17 becomes the key to this entire song. Until I came into the sanctuary of God. And there I perceived their end. You know, the difference between Asaph and someone who 
completely slips. You remember he says, my feet came close to stumbling, that my steps had almost slipped. What was the difference between him completely stumbling and slipping and not? He kept coming back into the sanctuary of God. He kept trying to figure it out. He kept looking to God to guide him. And in that moment, when he comes back into the presence of the Lord in his work in the sanctuary, he perceived their end. And notice how everything in this psalm changes from here to the end. You have surely, now he's going to talk confidently, theologically, but it's very different than the last two things he said. Surely you have set them in slippery places. <coughs> you cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by it. Doesn't look so good out there anymore, does it? What changed? An eternal view of life changes everything, brothers and sisters. We've got to recognize that eternity is real. And what looks good out there is all going to be burned up. I've always heard the story, and I don't, I don't know which preacher it was, but a preacher was taken to a, a ranch in Texas. A big wealthy rancher drove him all over and showed him all his buildings and all his cattle and all his land and all his stuff and brought him back to this big house. And the rancher says to the preacher, hey, so what do you think of my stuff? And the preacher says, I think it's all going to get burned up. <laughs> And he's right. An eternal view of the material brings us back into focus, doesn't it? A, an eternal view of what's going to survive this life into the next with God in heaven can change everything spiritually if we'll allow it to. But we've got to look beyond this material life. And that's exactly what Asaph does. He recognizes that they are going to be destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Verse 20, like a dream when one awakens, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. Now in the book, I give you, I give you a more elaborate explanation of this idea of the dream. There's two possibilities. Is One is that God will awaken at the end. And, and despise their form. The other is that wealth is like a dream. And when they wake up from that dream, it's not going to be so good, right? That, that they're going to realize their sudden terrors and that the Lord, the master, will despise their, their form. Regard them as worthless is that phrase. You see, they've built an image of themselves. Their image is the image of the world, isn't it? What does Genesis tell us we're supposed to be? We're made in the image of God. We as his people are to image him in the world. We're to represent him to the world. And what are they doing? They're speaking against him. The wealthy have set their mouth against the heavens, verse 9. They oppose these things. Even his own people are saying God's not paying any attention. And when... It comes to judgment, what's God's going to say? That thinking and that image that you've portrayed is, has no value to you because it's not going to get you into eternity with me. It's going to bring about your destruction. And he says in verse 21, when my heart was embittered 
and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant like a beast before you. You remember, he believed himself to have a pure heart, didn't he? God is good to Israel and to those that are pure in heart. What does he say about his heart now? Looking back on that time, now that he's gotten clarity of, of eternity, now that he's returned to the presence of God and, and he's clear on what's going on, how does he see his heart? Was he pure in heart at the beginning? He was embittered. He was soured. That's what the word is, soured. How many of us have met Christians who have a soured heart about God because God didn't answer a particular prayer in the way they needed it answered? Or they, they, they thought God would take care of them in a different way than he did, and it soured their heart against God. That's where Asaph found himself. But now looking back, he says, I was senseless and ignorant. He wasn't in control of his emotions. He wasn't focused on what was really important. He was focused on the worldly. He was focused on himself. He was focused on his wealth and his blessings and those things. And he wasn't focused on God. And his heart wasn't pure. It was embittered. It was soured against God. But now he sees that in verse 23. Three, he says, nevertheless, even though my heart was at one point embittered, I am continually with you. Does that sound like the same as Asaph from the first 17 verses of the book? Doesn't sound like he was walking real close with God at the beginning, was he? He was paying more attention to what's going on out there than what's going on here. And brothers and sisters, I got to tell you, the most important aspect of your life is what's going on here. That's right. And the world wants to tell you that everything else is more important. And I know you're going to hear it until you want to throw up this weekend. <laughs> but the reality is the political garbage that is poisoning and souring our hearts, the racial divides that are created in this country that are tearing us apart, all of these things that we are bickering over as a culture and that in some ways are being fueled by the wealthy and the rich who mock and oppress God and tell, seek to tell us what's right and good in this world when in reality they oppose God. We got to stop listening. We've got to start listening to God again and going back into his word. There's a, an old saying, but it's, it's spot on. God is not what you think he is. He is what he said he was. And until we go back to the book and get our theology right and let God tell us who he is and let God tell us how he's going to deal with us and how it's going to work and put him back on the throne rather than us putting ourselves on the throne and telling God how he should be working, we're going to have faith crisis. Our hope and our trust is going to be in jeopardy. And Asaph is finally putting God back on the throne, isn't he? He's, notice he says in verse 24, with your, oh, I almost forgot the most important one. Verse 23, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. And with your counsel, you guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Now, I want you to notice the wording of verse 23 very, very carefully. Notice it is not Asaph who takes a hold of God's hand. It is God that reaches through Asaph's doubt and struggle, and he takes hold of Asaph's right hand and guides him with his counsel. It's when we return to the counsel of God and let him guide us that he can take hold of our hand and lead us. 
But how often do we slap his hand away? How often do we slap his hand away and say, no, 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 I know better. I know how this should go. I know who you are. And we make God in our own image rather than us being made in his. And he says, you have taken hold of my right hand and your counsel, with your counsel, you will guide me and afterwards receive me with honor or receive me to glory. You know, we talk about the fact that in the Old Testament, it doesn't say a whole lot about the afterlife. This is one of those verses that I think does. Asaph understands that there's going to be some reuniting of of himself with God in glory. He's going to be received into glory. If he allows God to guide him, if he remembers who's really in charge of this whole thing and who really is winning. And so he says in verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you and beside you, I desire nothing on the earth. Was that the case in verse two? What did he say in verse three? I was envious of the arrogant and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What did he want in verse three? He wanted the prosperity. He wanted what the wicked have. And what does he say now? After he's come back to this relationship with God, his his vision uh, of his relationship with God has been clarified as mine. I desire nothing on earth except God. You know, we sing a song... I, 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 I won't call it what, I, what a friend of mine calls it, but I'm satisfied with a cottage below, a little silver and a little gold. A friend of mine calls that the liar song. Because <laughs> we're typically not satisfied. Right. As a matter of fact, the song even says, so I want one when I get there that's gold and silver lined, right? I'm satisfied here on the earth with a little bit of silver and gold, which materially we're not but when I once I get there I'm going to get my own house it's a huge one and it's going to be totally made of silver and gold (laughs) haven't we bought into the materialistic view aren't we still thinking like the world thinks at some level we got to realign our theology and recognize that what do you desire do you desire the relationship with God because you know what If you do, he will take you by his right hand and your right hand, and he will guide you through whatever difficulty you face in life. And there's going to be some challenging ones. As a matter of fact, we just heard last night of a young woman in this congregation that's gotten a diagnosis that she does not want. You know what? God will take her by his hand and lead her through that. Will he not? He will. Do we believe that? I don't think we do. Because we do everything ourselves to try to fix things. We see every doctor. We see every, we go everywhere we can to try to solve the problem. And then only once it looks beyond our control, what do we do? Well, I've done everything I can. I need to just leave it in God's hands. That's backwards. We should have left everything in God's hand to begin with and then done everything that we can do. Shouldn't we? Because he will lead us step by step. How is it that David can say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I may die in this valley. I may die in this trial. I may die in this difficulty. 
I may die from this diagnosis, but will God see me through it? Yes. Brothers and sisters, the answer is yes. And receive me to glory. And guess what? In glory, there is no cancer. There are no trials. There are no difficulties. There are no tears. He will take care of it if we trust him to do that. Asaph finally finds himself in that place. And he says in verse 26, My flesh and my heart may fail. My heart wasn't trustworthy. I thought it was pure in spirit, but now I realize I was soured. My heart isn't a good guide sometimes, is it? it? We can deceive ourselves. We can lie to ourselves. Think of all the New Testament passages that talk about the fact that we lie to ourselves about our relationship with God all the time. I know I get all kinds of grief. James, right? <laughs> but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You want to strengthen your heart for difficult times? You've got to put your heart in God's hands. You've got to allow him to guide you through. It doesn't mean that he promises to fix it all. He's never in scripture promised that. Our theology is such that we think that as soon as we give our life to him, he's going to fix everything. He's not. How many of us have seen brand new Christians who come to the Lord, come to the church, obey the gospel because of just the difficulties in their life? Their families are a mess. There's alcoholism, there's drugs, there's financial problems, there's all kinds of issues. They come to the Lord, they obey the gospel, they're immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins. And guess what does not happen? Their life doesn't automatically become fixed. And what happens? They fall away. Why? After a while. Well, he's not going to fix it. Why am I even? He doesn't know. We're back to the same problem, aren't we? But he says that we have to draw strength from God. God is the strength of my heart. Is God the strength of your heart or you? Faced with the difficulties and the trial of life, I'm going to tell you right now, if you are the strength of your heart, you got some tough times ahead. It's going to be rough. Because sometimes we're not strong enough to face the things that we have to face. But God is. And God will lead us through. He'll counsel us. He'll guide us. And he says, For behold, those who are far from you will, be, will perish. You have destroyed all of those that are unfaithful to you. What can I know? That if I place my heart in God's hand, he is faithful and he will take care of me. Not materially necessarily. He's not necessarily going to make the cancer go away. He's not necessarily going to fix all my financial problems. But he will lead me through that and on to glory, right? Amen. Yes. He will take care of it. We just mean something different when we say that. We say, I trust God to take care of this. What do we mean? That he's going to make it all go away. And when it doesn't go away, what happens? Our hope and our trust crumble because our theology was wrong. He never promised to take the difficulties away. He allowed his own son to be murdered on a cross. Why do you think he's going to take all the trials out of your life? He's not. But he will lead you through those. He will take you by the hand and guide you through if you let him. And so Asaph finishes 
Verse 28. But as for me, do you remember verse 2? But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling and my steps had almost slipped. Here at the end. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. What did he see as good at the beginning? The materialness of the world. What does he see as the favor of God now? The nearness of God. Do we see that the nearness of God is the favor that he gives to us? Our relationship with him and the nearness of him, that he's standing right beside me in that doctor's office. He's standing right beside me in that difficulty, whatever it is. I don't, I don't know what struggles you're dealing with, but God is right next to you. All you have to do is let him take you by the hand and guide you through it. And that will be the strength of your heart to face anything that God sets before you. Anything this world sets before you, God can lead you through it. The nearness of God is the good for those that love the Lord. And so he says, I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all of your works. You remember earlier, he was worried about speaking what he believed because he was afraid it would hurt God's people in verse 15, 16, and 17. Now with a proper view, what does he say? I can tell everybody, right? Brothers and sisters, we should be telling everybody about the glory of God. And the fact that even in this difficult culture, God will guide you through. God can help. Do we trust that? Is our heart set right? And are we focused on the things God would have us focus on? God isn't what you think he is. He's what he said he was. And what he said he is, is faithful and will guide you and lead you on to glory if you'll listen and if you'll let him follow, if you will follow him and let him lead you. Thanks for your time. Thank you.